0: Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about governments. We're going to be talking about God's relationship with governments throughout the Bible. And this can really inform us on the nature and character of God and what level of detail, what level of control of the government is exercised by God throughout the Bible. This podcast is going to be very timely because in the U.S., in the United States, we are nearing election season. And there's two main characters on the field. There's uh, Donald Trump and there's Hillary Clinton. And by most everyone's accounts, these are just two terrible characters, two terrible people. And a lot of claims are servicing either that God wants to install Trump, for example, as the President of the United States, to lead us uh, to be a righteous nation, or that God's trying to punish us with uh, a rule by Trump or a rule by Hillary. And people are linking this election to God's sovereign will, as if God is choosing the people to lead this country and endorses those people in order to serve his own purposes. But today we're going to see if that's the biblical concept, if that's how God actually functions In relations to governments, by setting up certain people for for certain tasks, and never having that deviate. All all governments everywhere are they set up by God? And when I see these claims, when I see these claims come up on my Facebook feed or in real life, what I instantly do is I turn them to Hosea eight. In Hosea eight, Hosea is railing against uh, the Israelites, the, the people of the northern tribe of Israel. Let's remember at that time Israel was split into two different kingdoms: the kingdom of Israel in the north, also sometimes called Samaria, because the capital of the kingdom of Israel was Samaria, and in the south it was the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom in the north uh, suffered the Syrian captivity, and the kingdom in the south suffered the Babylonian captivity. And Hosea threatens them. This is what he says: They made kings, but not through me. And this is God talking. Hosea is talking as God here. They made kings. But not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it, it is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken into pieces. So, what's happening here is God is looking at the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Israel is setting up all sorts of kings, and these kings are in opposition to God. God does not want them to be king. God wants other people to be king. And God hates them. It says, my anger burns against them because of their choice of king. And God uses this event as justification to punish them. He says, you did something. You spurned me. You ignored me. You did your own stuff. You set up your own government. And now I'm going to punish you and I'm going to break you into pieces. This verse is really fun to use against the Calvinist type, who think that God controls all governments, and God endorses and and sets up the leaders of all nations, and God set in place Kim Jong-un to oppress his people in North Korea and create slave labor camps. And this is all for God's glory, according to the Calvinist mindset. God is using all these different nations and setting up these leaders to play this intricate story, to play this intricate game. But that is not how Hosea reads. Hosea reads as if the people are doing something that God doesn't want, that uh, God is going to swiftly undo because it is against his will. And we see that throughout, especially the Old Testament, in God's relationship with nations over time. Often these kings come to power and God has to kill them or dispose of them. And, uh, you know, it's it's not this relationship where God is is endorsing and setting up every king that ever comes to power. We, we just don't find that in the Bible. Let's rewind all the way to Genesis. Genesis, God makes man and woman, sets them in a garden, and allows them to roam free, basically. He doesn't set up any government over them, especially after they start to breed and expand in the earth. We don't see governments. We do not see governments. God's original plan if we remember, is to be king of all of mankind. There's this direct relationship with mankind and God, and there's no intermediators, there's no hierarchy, there's no government system between the two. The original state of mankind was supposed to be in union with God, almost like an anarchy or a monarchy with God at the head and man free to do what they want. But soon this is all abolished. And we see the flood that God wipes out man and and then mankind has to repopulate the earth. And this is where we see the first government ever get established. And let's read about what happens in this event. This is the first government, Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, "Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we disperse over the whole face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see their city and the tower which the children had built. And the Lord said, Behold, there are one people and of one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech so the lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city so god comes down and the very first government that he encounters he disperses the people he says this is a bad idea they're getting together and i I like the language that's used here he says and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them so imagine like a calvinist type came across a verse that said that about god They would take that verse and they'd use it as a proof text for one of their, you know, God is sovereign and controls everything. But the Bible is not a manual on metaphysics. It's it's a normal book written for normal people that uses normal expressions. And some of those expressions are generalities or hyperbole. And in this case, it's applied to man. This just reminds us, if we want to read the Bible... We need to read it normally. We can't just assume weird metaphysics into all the texts where that doesn't belong. It's not explained in the context. That's not how we read the Bible. But God disperses the very first government. So God didn't want this government to exist. He didn't want this city to exist. And it seems that God backs off on this as a general rule because what what does mankind do? Mankind spreads out on earth and then they come back together and start building more and more cities. The next significant event we're going to talk about is the formation of the government of Israel. God chooses Abraham to make a special people to himself. This people is going to be a priest nation that represents him to the earth. And I'm going to play a clip from Yale professor Christine Hayes as she talks about this covenant and what it represents and how this government was supposed to work.
1: The covenant with Yahweh will also, we shall see soon, Preclude alliances with other human competitors. If Israel serves a divine king, she can't, for example, serve a human king. And that's an idea that will express itself in biblical texts, as we see, that are clearly opposed to the creation of a monarchy in Israel. Not everyone was on board with the idea that Israel should be ruled by a king. So there are texts that will object to the creation of the monarchy, King Saul and King David and so on. There are also texts that are going to object to alliances with any uh, foreign king or subservience to any foreign king, whether it's Egypt or Assyria or Babylonia. So subservience to a human king, native or foreign, is in these texts considered a rejection of the divine kingship, which is the ideal, the exclusive kingship of Yahweh, and seen as a breach of the covenant.
0: This original government was meant to have God as the king. There's no human king, there's no human rulers and instead of that, everyone reports directly to Yahweh. And so God himself endorses their original form of government. And this government is set up in Exodus 18. And a lot of people don't realize this, but this government was actually proposed by Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law. And what this system consisted of was a series of judges. And if you look at anarchic societies throughout history, monarchies even modern day Somalia, you you find this form of government fairly common where there's these local judges and there might be a series of judges that judge over local affairs. And so what God establishes through Jethro, through Moses in Exodus 18, is a form of minarchy ruled by unpaid judges. Another good example of this form of government is Ireland. Ireland was stateless for 2,000 years. There's a very interesting... Chat between Gerard Casey and Tom Woods. the name of the chat's called Ireland Stateless for two thousand years. but Ireland enjoyed this system of judges as well and it worked fairly well for them. So let's read the text. The next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses's father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? So Moses is just wasting all his time, each day, every day, just judging between all these stupid petty disputes. And his father-in-law is like, you're you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time doing all this. And so he says, now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. So Moses is uh, the intermediator between the people and God for... Their cases, And you shall warn them about the statutes and law, and make them known the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And let them judge all the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. And you will be able to endure, and all the people go to their place in peace. So what we get from this is Moses sets up a series of judges, and the judges can't take bribes, and they must be godly men. And And this is really crowdsourced. This government is crowdsourced. The justice is going to be crowdsourced. The dispute resolution is crowdsourced. No one's getting paid. This is not a tax and pay government. The only money that's ever being collected by the people in this original form of government is the tithes to fund the Levite caste. And this is the Levite caste, which is not allowed to own land. So everyone else has dispersed the land, and then they tithe to this Levite caste. But the Levite caste is not the government. And this series of judges actually doesn't get any money. They They are the de facto government, although it's unofficial, unpaid duties. Much like we see in those societies we already talked about. Ireland and Somalia being prime examples. So now I'm going to quote Bob Enyart on this. And Bob Enyart, he just talks about the practicality of this, what it would look like if it was set up in the United States, which he's an advocate of. So let's listen
2: to him. Today, if we were to implement this, it would be like a judge for every block. Let's say the average block has 10 houses on it. or Depending on the size of the blocks, maybe in a rural area it might be right around the four sides of the block or in uh, metropolitan areas it might be one side of the street on one end of one block would be ten houses maybe there's five houses on your block and across the street there's five more those ten houses that would be there'd be a block judge and he would judge the families in those ten houses that's how that would work And then from that point, a hierarchy builds, a hierarchy of judges. These entry-level judges handle only cases within their jurisdictions and only cases that are are not severe. For example, a kid on the block steals a bicycle from his neighbor. The entry-level judge can hear that case. And we'll see that as we uh, go up the hierarchy of judges, their jurisdiction will increase and the severity of crimes they can deal with will increase. Well, then out of those entry level judges, you need higher level judges. And they're sort of, they will percolate through the system on their way up. And so it's quite a jump to go from just a judge over a certain number of families to now you're a judge supervising other judges at a much higher level. So, so you go from a judge over 10 to a judge over 50. So you have five judges under you, each of which would have 10 families. And at that point you learn what it means to supervise men who are judges of families. And you learn that. And there'd be a lot of judges who wouldn't want that promotion. A lot of people like what they do in life, and they're not ambitious, and they say, I just want to do what I do. Let everybody else worry about all these other things. There's a lot of people who wouldn't want that promotion. Right there, that cut would help the leaders decide you know who's inclined to be judges and who's not. Then if somebody's a judge over 50s, the next promotion adds a new dimension to their responsibility. Because now they're not only managing judges, but they're managing middle level managers who are judging others. It's sort of like running Amway or something. And it could get complicated. It could be difficult. It requires sophisticated management skills. And in order to do that, there's this graduated approach. And then once you get to a judge over 100, you've proved your abilities. And then from there on, all the promotions would be a, by a factor of ten, so you'd be a judge over a thousand, and a judge over ten thousand, and a hundred thousand, and a million, and so on, going up to depending on how large the country is, and what the population is. So that in this country we would have judges over ten million, and you know we have a population of over two hundred and eighty million, I think it is in this country, and so we'd have twenty-eight. You know, we have a Supreme Court of nine justices. We'd have, it wouldn't be a Supreme Court like a jury, but we'd have 28 judges at the federal level. And each of them would have their jurisdictions. And then it would, people would percolate up and the authority would flow downhill. And that's the way the system as God is uh, recorded in the Bible, that's the way his system works. Now, somebody could say, well, that system is inferior, and I think that if we Republicans and Democrats wrestle with this, we could come up with a better plan. And have at it, you know? See what you can do. Go ahead, knock yourself out. But chances are, no one's going to come up with a better idea. It's a relatively simple idea, and it's easy to implement.
0: So that's the system of the judges, and vengeance government accountability to the laws it's it's not enforced by a series of police or military personnel it's it's crowdsource it's vengeance it's vigilantes and we learn about the avenger of blood And what the avenger of blood was was a person who would go avenge murder so it's usually like a blood relative and these individuals would go out and kill the people who killed their relatives and they themselves would then not be guilty but that that was how justice was dealt with in the time of the judges. Crowdsource vigilantism. It's not a paid government. There's no poli- paid police force. There's no paid military. There was a military draft in time of war where everyone converted their farm equipment to swords or whatnot and then joined the military. But there are certain exceptions for the draft, and uh, we, we don't want to get into too deep into how this system of government works, but this was God's preferred system of government. And we really get a sense of that when we come to 1 Samuel 8, in which the people demand a king. They get tired of the system of judges. They don't like it. And they tell Samuel, they say, give give us a king. Pick a king to lead over us. And let's read what happens there. 1 Samuel 8.4 Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all other nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, Forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you now, then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of a king who shall reign over them. So the king is a rejection of God, establishing a monarchy is a rejection of God being king over them and and this comes with a warning: God warns them in first Samuel eight nine he says, "You know what, Samuel? warn these idiots, these idiots want a king." Well, let's tell them what a king's going to do. And then throughout 1 Samuel 8, they list all the harms that a king's going to do. He's going to draft people. He's going to tax them. He's going to force them to serve and and, uh, take care of him. And, And the kingdom of Israel eventually falls apart because they are overly taxed. And that's what drives the final divide between Israel, the Israel in the north and Judah in the south is this tax dispute over an oppressive king. Remember, we're talking about Hosea. Well, Hosea 1311 comments on this incident and said, I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. This whole monarchy thing in Israel was not God's idea. God considered it a rejection of him, a rejection of God as king. We're going to jump to some quotes by Christine Hayes about this anti-monarchical theme that we find throughout the Bible. But before then, let's talk really quick about Deuteronomy 17. People say, oh, Deuteronomy 17, isn't that a prediction that these people are going to get a king? Isn't this an endorsement? That's absolutely not what's happening here. And in Deuteronomy 17:15, he says, uh, let's start in 14, when you come to the land of the Lord, your God has given you and you possess it and dwell it. And then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then it goes on to list what the kings should not do. This is not an endorsement of monarchy. This is not God saying you should get a king. It's not even a prediction of the future because remember, it takes 400 years in the promised land before the people demand a king from Moses all the way to Samuel about 400 years. And so this is not a prediction of you're going to enter the promised land and then say, give me a king, and it's all going to happen right away. He's 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 predicting you guys are going to look at these other nations and you're going to want to emulate them. And if you're going to do that, here's who you need to pick, and you can't pick someone who's against me. I need to be picking your people for you, which suggests in the text, again, let's go back to the theme of God's not controlling people, God's not controlling nations, and generally, God doesn't pick the heads of nations. He's saying, don't pick someone that I don't endorse. Pick someone that I endorse. This is a warning to them. And he's saying, these are the things that these, these kings should not do. Don't let them take a ton of wives. Who took a ton of wives? Solomon took a lot of wives. He says, don't uh, return yourselves to Egypt or put foreigners over you. All these things happened throughout the Old Testament text. All these things that led to disasters, and God's warning them against these things in this text. It's not a prediction, and it's not an endorsement of the monarchy. We do have other texts that suggest endorsement of a monarchy, and let's let Christine Hayes talk a little bit about that.
1: Most important for us, however, is the existence of sources that hold opposing views of the institution of kingship. This makes for an interesting and complicated structure in the book. Some of the passages are clearly anti-monarchic, and some are clearly pro-monarchic. Now, I've put them up here, the anti-monarchic passages. 1 Samuel 8, there's a passage in 10, there's a passage in 12. The pro-monarchic passages are sandwiched in between these, right? in 9 and 11. So you have this alternating sequence of anti-pro, anti-pro, anti. 1 Samuel 8 is a classic example of the anti-monarchic perspective. Samuel is initially opposed to the whole idea. He apparently resents the usurpation of his own power, until God says, Heed the demand of the people in everything they say to you, for it is not you they have rejected, it is me they have rejected as their king. Heed their demand, but warn them solemnly, and tell them about the practices of any king who will rule over them. And so Samuel does that. He does that in verses 11 through 18. He warns of the tyranny of kings, the rapaciousness of kings the service and the sacrifice they'll require of the people in order to support their luxurious court life and their large harem, their bureaucracy and their army. The day will come, Samuel warns, when you cry out because of the king whom you yourselves have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you on that day. All right, very anti-monarchic passage. The people won't listen to him, and they say quite significantly, no, we must have a king over us that we may be like all the other nations. Let our king rule over us and go out at our head and fight our battles. So this is an explicit and ominous rejection, not only of Yahweh, but of Israel's distinctiveness from other nations. And what, after all, does it mean to be a holy nation, but to be a nation separated out from, observing different rules from other nations? In Samuel 12, Samuel retires. And he says, as he does so, see, it is the king who leads you now. I am old and gray. And he again outlines what is required of a good king, and then again chastises the people for even having asked for a king, uh, warning that really God must be served wholeheartedly. A king should not interpose himself.
0: There are definitely texts that that endorse the monarchy. King David is a celebrity in the Old Testament. The first king, Saul, did not work out very well. And as uh, we recall from previous podcasts, we talk about 1 Samuel 15, And God regrets. This is one of the two actions that God regrets of his own throughout the Bible. It's not like God is regretting Saul's behavior. God's regretting his own action here. He says that I regret making Saul king. And not only does God say this in the text, but the narrator in the text says it as well, reinforcing the point that God really regrets making Saul the king. God didn't want Saul to rebel. God didn't want Saul to fail. God didn't want Saul to be a weak king that didn't follow him. And God chose Saul. So this is one of the times that God does choose a leader for a nation. Uh, But Saul failed him and God regrets making him king. And then turns to David. And this is after telling Saul, he said, I would have given you an eternal kingdom. I would have done it. But uh, you failed me. You're a failure. You don't get the eternal kingdom. And so then I'm going to go to David I'm going to offer David the eternal kingdom as well. But then we see throughout David's reign and the reigns of his son that God really makes this eternal kingdom conditional. He says, if you turn away from me, you know, I'm going to strike this eternal kingdom from you. And so the eternal kingdom is conditionally based on the behavior of King David and King David's sons. And eventually the kingdom is partially taken away from King David's lineage when the kingdom splits up. And this is a judgment by God as described in the text for their activities. Some people might object to things that I've been saying. They say, oh, Christ, Jesus, he had to come from David's lineage. Well, you know, all the messianic prophecies, those are from uh, the prophetic period, the exile period. And you don't see those prophetic prophecies of a messiah through the david lineage before the reign of king david so just because god turned eventually to a monarchy and then endorsed the monarchy of king david that's the reason why god decided to provide a deliverer a messiah through king david's lineage it wasn't this uh, event pre-planned from before eternity that jesus had to come through the lineage of david that's not how god operates in the Bible. God works with people. God works based on contingencies. We see even John the Baptist saying, you know what? God promised things to Israel. Even if all of Israel rejects him, God could still fulfill his promises by killing all of Israel and raising up new children to Abraham through these stones because God's a little bit more innovative than us. And he could figure out ways to deal with changing circumstances. So let's look at a couple of examples of how God deals with kings that he doesn't like. And our first example is one of my favorite examples in the Bible to just talk about, because it's it's funny to me. In Judges 3, this is the time of the judges. And if we remember the time of the judges, Israel was particularly wicked, and they kept falling away, and God had to keep punishing them. And this is where we see God using foreign nations, and he uses them as judgment. So he raises up a foreign nation to attack his own people, to attack his own people and punish them. Then he raises up a deliverer, and in Judges 3, the people are enslaved to Eglon, king of Moab, and a deliverer, Ehud, he arises. And what this guy does is he gets a knife, and then he goes into the king's chamber, and the, the, the king's a really fat guy, and he says, I got a secret for you, and all the people leave because it's a secret. And the king's very interested in hearing this exclusive secret. And he says, Ah, here's my secret from God. And then he takes a knife and he stabs it into this guy. And then the guy's so fat, and I think Chris Christie fat, something super fat. He's so fat that the blade just sinks into his body and disappears. And then Ehud, he just escapes through the window. And that's how God delivers his people through an assassination attempt. Another assassination attempt that everyone who has been listening to this podcast should be very familiar with is in 1 Kings 22. And in 1 Kings 22, God sets up this divine deception. He tries to kill Ahab. And the way he does this is it's it's described by Micaiah. God is sitting in the divine council and he's surrounded by the angels. And he says, I want to kill this guy, Ahab. How can I do this? And all the angels, they gather around, and they all start brainstorming. They start brainstorming how to kill this king. This is a divine assassination. God doesn't want this king. God wants this king dead, and he wants this king to die in a specific way going to war. And all the angels start throwing out ideas until one particular angel says, Hey, I got a good idea. Let's just lie to all his prophets. All his false prophets who worship their false gods will all tell them the same lie, that this guy's going to be prosperous in the battle, and then he's going to go to battle And then uh, he could die there. And God says, that's a great plan. These are the normal ways that God works with governments. This is the normal way that God controls governments. He uses agents. He uses manipulation. He uses assassinations. And it's not this meticulous control that Christians like to pretend it is. That God is divinely appointing everyone. No, sometimes God appoints people and those people fail. Sometimes God doesn't appoint people. The people appoint people and God gets mad and he punishes them. That's the normal narrative in the Bible about how God works with these governments. Yes, he sometimes uses these governments for his own purposes to do his own will. And sometimes he manipulates them to do his own will. But sometimes these people are in rejection of God and they make God very angry and God just has to get rid of them because He doesn't want them in those positions of authority. And it's always good to remember that God never wanted a monarchy. God never wanted a presidency. God never wanted a strong central government. God wanted us to serve him. God wanted him to be king and us to live our lives in a minarchist fashion, holding our allegiance to God and not the government. That was the original plan for the world. That was the original plan for creation, and then man rebelled and man set up government. God begrudgingly allows this experiment with government, but that wasn't the original plan. If you got questions or comments on today's podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the Facebook companion page, God is Open. Thank you for listening.